Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 60, Tai Show Twilight. This week, we return to normal coverage on Japan and head back to the home islands. The early 20s were a fragile time for Japanese democracy. The interconnected oligarchs had largely passed away, and the consensus they built went along with them, which on one hand opened the way for more democratic politics to finally get some room to develop, but on the other, left the military operating in their own little world disconnected from civilians. And due to the diffused power structure under the Constitution and the propensity of most of the Japanese establishment to be pro-military, meant that there would be plenty of opportunity to undermine the civilian government. And the conditions in the 20s in general were not going to be a big help either. The economy was still in a bad way, and the working class became very restless as a result, which I discussed a few weeks ago. The twin blows of recession, and an unpopular Siberian expedition meant that public support of Japan's institutions had reached an all-time low. That Haru Takashi, the man who had led the breakthrough of party politics into the highest offices of the Japanese government, was assassinated in November 1921, was an appropriately bad sign for how the decade was going to go. He was stabbed to death by a right-wing railway worker while catching a train, and while political assassinations wouldn't immediately become the norm, they'll become a more common sight down the road. His murder threw a gargantuan wrench into the Sayukai's efforts to create a stable government based on elected officials. Hara had been held in high esteem even by his political opponents, like Yamagata, for example, and had made inroads with the factions of the House of Peers. With that and the House of Representatives supporting his cabinet, he could look forward to at least passing domestic reforms, even as the military remained hostile. His replacement... Takahashi Koryuko was not a strong enough personality and lacked the same following, and the Sayukai's cabinet fell due to infighting as Takashi proved incapable of managing his own party. He was much more the populist, which displeased the establishment moderates surrounding him. This started an interlude in the mid-20s that would see a return to non-elected governments. I introduced Keito Tomosaburo as the prime minister that finally ended the Siberian expedition and he also withdrew Japanese forces from the Shandong province in China. That occupation had been going on since World War I, and had been a major thorn in Sino-Japanese relations. The withdrawal, though, predictably alarmed the ultra-nationalists in the military, who saw it as counter to their interests. That and Cato also oversaw the actual implementation of the Washington Naval Treaty, which those same ultra-nationalists saw as limiting to the empire's freedom of action. Despite the tension over empire, though, it would be domestic affairs that would dominate attention in most of the 20s. The recession of 1920 had proven devastating. There were signs that the crisis was being weathered. Aggressive action had been taken by the Japanese financial with the Bank of Japan leading the way to buying up unsold inventories and providing loans to struggling businesses. This aggressiveness would have consequences. By the end of 1922, many smaller banks started going under, as a result of defaulted loans, which caused temporary panics. The worst, though, was to occur in 1923. On September 1st of that year, the Great Kanto Earthquake struck. The earthquake took its name from the Kanto region, which was dominated by a great plain that surrounded Tokyo by land. The earthquake struck just to the southwest of Tokyo, and hit with a magnitude of 7.9. The shaking was apocalyptic, and 555,000 homes were destroyed. But the earthquake didn't just bring down buildings, although it did do plenty of that. In fact, much of the damage was caused by a rapid spread of fires. 
Uh, keep in mind, back in those days, open fires were still used for cooking, and buildings were still overwhelmingly made of wood. This devastated entire cities, including Tokyo and Yokohama. Two-thirds of the capital was destroyed, and the fires in its ruins could be seen in the night sky a hundred miles away. Rescue efforts were hampered by the overwhelming flames, and civil authority broke down. Prime Minister Kato had actually died of cancer a week previous to the earthquake on August 24th, and his replacement had not yet been selected. That was fixed the next day by the appointment of Admiral Yamamoto Kodahoye, no relation to the much more famous Admiral Yamamoto who devised the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, his government was considered an emergency and, like his predecessor, dispensed with political parties when forming his cabinet. He immediately deployed the army to oversee the evacuations and handle relief efforts. Over 105,000 people were confirmed dead. Uh, 30,000 were reported as injured, although this number was probably way, 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 way higher. And tens of thousands were missing. In Tokyo, there was the usual cosmic unfairness as the imperial palace was unharmed, but the poorer quarters of the city were totally destroyed. A quarter million people lost their jobs as their places of employment were also Railroads were torn apart in the area affected, which meant that evacuations and recovery efforts had to be handled mostly by non-mechanized means. There was also a social panic over the disaster as well. There were rumors of Korean looters prowling the ruins and murdering people, which led to pogroms where several thousand migrant Koreans were killed. 1,300 socialists were also rounded up in the immediate aftermath, and of them, a group of nine were murdered on the spot by the army. There were no grounds for the arrests, just a confused fear that somehow these political dissidents had something to do with how bad things had gotten. Damages were reported to have cost 6 to 11% of the national GDP at the time. The government tried to mount a desperate effort to rebuild, but since their financial resources were already exhausted by trying to lend through the recession, that wasn't an option. Instead, foreign capital had to be raised which the British and United States offered at high rates of interest, something that the Japanese public took exception to and would help fuel an anti-Western sentiment I'll go into more detail on later. And those loans wouldn't even be agreed upon until February 1924, simply because much of the Diet was unwilling to accept the unfavorable terms, which I can't really blame them, uh, but nothing else was really done as the budget went into freefall and the economic center of the country vanished. Also, the entire insurance industry in the area fell apart, predictably, and people were left with no means to rebuild beyond what the government could scrape together. And even once efforts got going, they were hampered by the migration of a million and a half people out of Tokyo, which tanked the labor market right at the time they needed hands to work. The buildings that would spring up from the ruins were often simple wooden sheds with tin roofs, Hardly a roaring comeback from the disaster. To say that the earthquake couldn't have come at a worse time is an understatement, as economic life in the region around Tokyo was paralyzed for years. When the crown prince Hirohito was married on January 26, 1924, the event's pomp and circumstance was drastically played down to reflect the sober mood of the capital. Hirohito might have also been a little gun-shy about public events as well, given that the previous month, he had almost died in an assassination attempt. The event is known as the uh, Toranomen Incident, uh, the name coming from the intersection that it took place at. On December 27, 1923, Hirohito was traveling to open the diet 
in his father's stead when a communist named Daisuke Namba opened fire on its carriage with pistols. The shots hit another passenger, but Hirohito emerged without a scratch. Daisuke was arrested and executed in November 1924, but the incident was going to have widespread implications. Firstly, the brief Yamamoto government ended as the Admiral took responsibility for the incident, paving the way for yet another conservative non-party Prime Minister, Iora Hiego. More long-term was that the government started taking dissident activity much more seriously. If there was anything that could galvanize the increasingly fractured government to start taking drastic action, it was an attack on the crown prince. And more speculatively, this might also be a point where Hirohito started taking a more active interest in affairs of state. Since 1921, he had been acting as regent on behalf of his incapacitated father, but he was still young and inexperienced and had mostly stayed clear of political affairs. This would start to change as he began to insert himself as the expected supreme authority of the country. Already, he was becoming the object of devotion among the patriotic of the nation, an imperial cult that was actively promoted by the powerful close palace. Hirohito was already proven to be a far more outgoing royal than his predecessor as well, although his grandpa was very traditional in style and his dad was a borderline invalid, so it's a kind of a small sample size. Anyway, uh, still, he was the first monarch of Japan to actually leave the country and had visited Europe on a grand tour in 1921 which opened his eyes to just how isolated he was in the palace. Through his regency to his eventual ascension later in 1926, he would become much more interested in the complicated politics of his country and would begin to fill the void that had been left by his incapacitated father. And there was an uptick in dissident activity to be cracked down upon as well. Economic crisis and the follies of empire helped birth resurgence to the Japanese far left, which the decade previous had been largely wiped out. Like in so many other parts of the world, the Russian Revolution gave a big shot in the arm to the local Marxists, and radical disillusioned with all of society's woes turned back for revolutionary thought. And where the elite saw concerning unrest, the advocates of the left saw growing opportunity in the unrest among the country's workers. Hopes among the left were further stirred in 1919, when the largest workers' association in the country, the UIKAI, adopted a more aggressive platform and renamed themselves the Japanese Federation of Labor. They demanded the formal legalization of open trade unions, an eight-hour workday, and a six-day work week. Usual stuff, but always important first steps. In addition, the old peace police law that had so curtailed the viability of organized labor was targeted and universal suffrage was called for. In order to get these demands, the Federation of Labor was willing to stage public march, something far more uncommon in Japan at the time than in the West. It was during 1919-1920 that attempts were made to push through legislation for universal male suffrage, and both times the Japanese elites were roused into opposition to it. It was in July 1919 that people of all walks of life, from factory workers to teachers, even some government bureaucrats, went on strike to demand universal suffrage, at least among males. Instead of being cowed, the elites doubled down. Yamagata was still around and active at the time and was wholly against the idea, correctly seeing it as a threat to his political style of government, while Prime Minister Hara pushed instead for a sidestepping reform in which representative districts were made small. This uninspiring electoral tweak was intended to lessen the impact of the unwashed masses' electoral power in the event they did actually get universal suffrage down the road. This all didn't go over very well, 
and the passions of the working class were in play still more. Faith in democratic institutions lessened among the workers. This wave of enthusiasm for socialism was also much broader than back in the Meiji era as well. Before, it had mostly been an intellectual thing. This time, there was actual working class back. And unlike last time, the youth actually committed to the move. Students had been supporters of leftist policies in the past, but mostly as an affectation or in a non-committal, well-wishing sense. Now students with promising futures were exposing themselves to the cause, which concerned the government as they had assumed only the unhealthy and disreputable would partake in these quote-unquote dangerous thoughts to society. Many of these students stuck around in academia, ensuring the universities in Japan became hotbeds of leftist thought. At the start of the 20s, there was a burning passion among the newly emerged left, both on the working class and more academic sides. Confrontation was sought after, and up until the end of 1922, protests and marches in favor of dismantling the privileges of the elites became a more common sight. This was driven by the charisma of an anarchist named Asuge Sake, whose philosophy of personal freedom became an early hit among the left and most successfully harnessed the outrage and feeling that something, anything, had to be done. It was he that set the tone for resistance to the state, making shows of public defiance that made for wonderful newspaper art. And while it was never anything huge, one time, notably just refusing to stand to hear his sentence after a trial, his example inspired others as they too realized the state did nothing for them and could be defied. Unfortunately for him, the elite stood firm, and it became apparent that progress was not going to happen in a couple of years, as many in the left had hoped, resulting in interest turning to the more slow and steady practices of the Marxists. Asugi would not live long enough to really see this shift take place, as in the aftermath of the Kanto earthquake in September 1923, he was among those the authority murdered. Moving forward, the left would seek to build up class consciousness among the workers as best they could within the confines they found themselves in. Their work ultimately was not given enough time to bear fruit, as the government was becoming more and more aware of their activities within Japanese labor. There had been some attempts at forming right-wing organizations as well on the other side of the political spectrum, but these movements were not endorsed by anyone of influence, and while their activities in assaulting strikers and leftists was not discouraged, they were never officially condoned or given real patronage. The eventual curtailing of the labor movement would have to come from the top not from the right-wing grassroots, as in, oh, say, European fashion. Something employers did try in the early 20s in order to keep peace was the concept of work counts. Being, strictly speaking, employer-controlled meant that they were ultimately a tool to manage workers and not empower them, and the intent was that they would form a conduit between labor and management. Think of any number of internal corporate groups that let employees some grievances and vent without actually taking any meaningful change, and you get the picture. But they also had a tendency to get hijacked by the more assertive workers who would press claims far harder than any of the employers were comfortable with. That all being said, they were ultimately tools of management and were organizations in a constant flux, as many were shut down when they got out of hand. And once the tide had turned against labor after the mid-1920s, they vanished completely. Disorders were not isolated to the home island either, as Korea proved to be a continuously restive country as well. The military administration on the peninsula under General Hasegawa wildly overestimated 
how resigned the population had become to Japanese domination. Their illusions were dispelled in an episode following the death of the last monarch of Korea, Yi. The man had never been terribly popular among his subjects, and since the Japanese annexation had been living as a virtual prisoner in his accommodations, not even being used as a puppet ruler as the Japanese would later do with the last Chinese emperor, Puyi, and his nominal realm of Manchukuo. Yi passed away on January 21, 1919. The colonial administration wasted no time in declaring what a good friend he had been to Japan, and how good a statesman he had been to have made such an advantageous relationship with the Japanese Empire. The people of Korea felt different. Despite Yi not having been a public figure for years to that point, for many, his death reminded them of the days of independence and how things had been without the Japanese. Not that they had been great, which was part of the reason the Japanese were able to be there in the first place, but the memory of freedom was still very much alive in Korea. And for younger Koreans, even those who had gotten an education under Japanese auspices, took the opportunity to agitate for a restored independence. This was all simultaneous with the Siberian expedition and put the Japanese authorities on edge. The public displays of mourning for Yi were correctly interpreted as a desire for the Japanese to leave, and the regime proceeded to overreact. On March 1, 1919, thousands of people appeared before the Korean royal palace as mourners. The Japanese guards on the scene drove them out violently. Two days later, the official funeral was held under the watchful eye of 7,000 Japanese troops, insurance to make sure the carefully choreographed day went exactly as planned. And while the funeral went off without a hitch, it wasn't the end of the demonstrations. All across Korea, people would form processions with their national flags, chanting Mansei, or 10,000 years, which was a traditional cry of acclamation to their native king. The local police forces being dominated by the Japanese, fired into these unarmed crowds, dispersing them and rounding up thousands for imprisonment and torture. General Hasegawa blamed the whole thing on a nebulous Bolshevik element in the country, but didn't offer up anything in the way of proof or if he was even attempting to understand the popular sentiment that was gripping the nation that he was cracking down on. His explanation was not received well in Tokyo, and he was replaced with one Admiral Seta. I suppose having an army man failed, he peace led the government to turn to the Navy for his replacement. Saito arrived with the intent to establish a lighter touch to the regime, but his holdover subordinate, other items. General Akaiki, who was in command of large sections of the country's police forces, made 3,000 snap arrests on March 1, 1920, exactly a year after the start of the previous disturbances. Saito was falling prey to the classic trap of Japanese politics, where his subordinates were not on board with policies, and simply elected to continue operating as they pleased without gluing them in. This new wave of arrests, added on top of the past year crackdown, encouraged many Korean families who were able to to move north into Manchuria. There, the warlord Zhang Zhulin proved open enough to accepting them as new Chinese citizens and settlers as part of his efforts to develop Manchuria. The Japanese, however, saw the growing migrant community of Koreans in China as a threat and expanded their policing to places across the border. Now, Zhang might have been a Japanese client, but he wasn't exactly a puppet either, and tried to stop the activities of the Japanese police, but did eventually back down to avoid a conflict that he really couldn't afford. He instead increased his own policing on the border to allay Japanese concerns, 
and ensure they didn't have excuses to operate on his turf. Still, rumors of a cross-border plot continued to grow, and by September 1920, there were reports of underground operations to stage bombings in Korea. Arrests were made, but a riot broke out in Wonsan, on the east coast of northern Korea. More arrests were made, but Aikaiki's efforts just made things even worse. On October 2nd, a riot broke out in northeast Manchuria, where a Korean crowd burned down the local Japanese consulate, killing 10. In response, the Japanese army entered Manchurian territory and started hunting out a rumored force of a thousand Korean rebels. Not able to locate the rebels, they settled for rounding up 30 Koreans and executing them on October 30th. By November 21st, the Japanese had killed 4,000 Koreans and burned 1,000 homes, all on Chinese soil. When confronted by foreign missionaries, the Japanese commander on the scene merely reminded them of the British massacre at Amritsar and that his troops had performed in a less bloodthirsty manner than they. Admiral Sato himself stated that compared to the British in Ireland, his troops hadn't given too unethical an accounting of themselves. Which I would say the correct response is that none of these people should have ever gotten a position of power, uh, but then I wouldn't get to make a podcast about criminal excesses and wasted chances building into something bigger and more terrible than anyone could have ever imagined. And as you may have picked up, by the mid-1920s, Japan had become dangerously unstable as its establishment refused to reckon with the increasing assertiveness of the disenfranchised. Meanwhile, the ultra-right militarists, who despised even the unobtrusive liberalism of political groups like the Sayukai, were lurking off to the side, only temporarily humbled by their misadventures in mainland Asia. And fortuitously for them, by the latter half of the 20s, they would start to gain allies in the form of those who increasingly became ambivalent about popular democracy. The business class was bruised by labor disturbances during the first half of the 20s, but were by no means crippled in their activities. They still held the economic cards, and the labor movement was only able to win concessions here and there at a local level. The grip of capital on the national government was such that no legislation was ever passed to legalize workers' rights, despite it being widely acknowledged as a necessity. But by the mid-1920s, the door on reform was starting to creak shut. The militarists were paranoid about the left domestic. The business class wanted to stamp out resistance on the shop floors, House of Representatives and the Diet was too divided to take any action towards reform. The early years of Hara trying and failing to reign in the military were not approved upon, as the Sayukai, which wasn't even always in power, had to support the status quo and avoid confrontations with the militarists in order to keep open the possibility of returning to power later on. The smaller opposition parties would jump on populist bandwagons in order to try to drum up support. They could never muster the clout needed to form a government themselves. Problems with the House of Representatives aside, the real losers of Japanese politics during these years was the traditional nobility. Privy Council, that body of esteemed gentlemen who directly advised the emperor, gradually lost influence during the 20s. This was a deliberate policy of the part of the Sayukai when in power, especially by their elder statesman Sayonji, the last of the general. The Privy Council had traditionally been a very powerful force, dominated by men close to the Meiji Emperor from 1909 to 1922 had been dominated by Yamagata. Given that those were most years under the invalid Taisho Emperor, this meant that Yamagata's position was for a long time insurmountable. Once it was gone, though, Sayonji moved to ensure that his prominence would not be repeated. As older members cycled out into retirement, 
Sionji, as the elder, most influential statesman, maneuvered to have bureaucrats with few powerful friends and academics from outside of government installed in their place. Over the years, the standing of the council's membership decreased, and so too did its influence on government deliberations as it became increasingly apolitical. The House of Peers didn't quite get the same treatment, but that's mostly because Sionji considered that upper house of the Diet to be so fragmented as to be easily manipulated, which, to be fair, was mostly true now that the factions of old had begun to decline and the old networks themselves had broken apart. Now to get influence as a noble, one had to cut a deal with the Sayukai or some other influential political party in the lower house. This became especially true as the political parties secured more and more appointments within the government bureaucracy. In days of old, the factional leaders like Abogado or Ito would make backroom arrangements for important posts. Old guard mostly gone, the political parties stepped into the void. And this went both ways too, as bureaucrats weren't just appointed by parties, but established ones chose to join with these organizations. Takashi Korikiyo, the unfortunate prime minister who had succeeded Hara, had actually gotten a start in the Ministry of Agriculture and Commerce before working for the Bank of Japan, followed by an appointment as the Minister of Finance. Only after he had already reached that high position did he join with Sayukai to push his agenda further. Tanaka Gichi, Hara's ally in the armed forces, had been a military man and even a protege of the Amagatas before joining the Sayukai as well. This change in the political gravity of Japan towards the House of Representatives meant that the turn towards appointed governments after Takahashi's disastrous stint was only temporary. The days of responsible government were due to return. In fact, Kiyora Kiego's government would be the last appointed one for some time, and his six-month stint as prime minister is remarkable mostly for the opposition to it in the House of Representatives. Wanting back into power, uh, virtually every elected official worked against the prime minister and in June 1924 brought his government down. Moving forward, Japan would become governed not just by elected officials, ones that were far freer of interference from the Privy Council and the House of Peers. The second half of the 20s would see the apex of the Taisho democracy. But the increased power of the parties wouldn't change the character of the conservative Japanese establishment. Next week, we'll be wrapping up Japan in the 20s as the empowered House of Representatives moves to address all the aforementioned problems roiling Japan domestically. Tragically for the Japanese people, this means a resurgence of state power in the hands of fearful conservatives with predictable results. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.